As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. The people asked, and I'm so glad that Yara obliged to be back on the Malcolm Effect. You killed that last episode. Everyone was talking about it. You got me in a bit of trouble. We're not going to go into that. Welcome back, Yara. Thank you so much. You've become a friend of the podcast. So how, wait, how are you? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Oh, no, I got you in trouble. We'll have to talk about that after. I'll need to, I'll need <laughs> yeah. to hear about that. But I'm doing good. Thanks for thanks for bringing me back on. <laughs> no, thanks for coming on. As always, your tweets. You know, funnily enough, I had a friend. Not to, I don't want to gas you up too much, but I just need to say this point. I had a friend yesterday call me from London and was like, who is that Yara a uh, person, woman that you're sharing. And I was like, oh yeah, I met on Clubhouse and she come on the podcast, go, listen, her tweets are always on point. I'm like, yeah, come on, I only roll with G's. I only roll with OG's, now come on. <laughs> oh my goodness, nah. thank you. I mean, I just, I had a funny uh, transition into Twitter via Clubhouse, which is sort of weird. People like were are like, what do you mean? You just got on Twitter because you started using Clubhouse, but a friend from Clubhouse like made me get a Twitter account, and of course, I've yeah. now become addicted to that too. So when we first started, <laughs> I was addicted to Clubhouse. Now I'm addicted to Twitter. So I, you can imagine, I'm not being very productive in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope this today serves as an intervention from your addiction. Thank you. Yes, I think it will. I think putting all those tweets to to use to do something, I think, valuable. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you. I mean, depending who you talk to, I know, I mean, it's quite a serious topic. And I think there's so many ways we can approach this. And this is the question of Palestine. And depending on who you speak to, you know, you're going to get a plethora of voices and comments and viewpoints. And as someone, I'll be honest, like, I, you know, this podcast is me doing my learning in public. And I'm as someone who's I trust takes, I'm just going to throw it at you and ask you questions, and which I think people need to understand and be aware of when it comes to Palestine. So maybe if we got, we can maybe start off with, this can be as long as you want, as brief as you want. Do you want to detail the conflict or the issue of Palestine for us? Yeah. Okay. So that's a big question to start. I think the best way to understand the situation in Palestine is through a framework of settler colonialism. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess what I'll, what I'll do is I'll make a distinction, right? So I think that there are idealist analyses of Palestine, and then there are materialist analyses, right? And, you know, we largely see the idealist analyses in the mainstream media manifest in a couple of ways, right? So we mm-hmm. get you know, frameworks that say, oh, there are two different kinds of people who are fighting over, uh, over the land and they disagree ideologically. Sometimes the, the position will be, oh, they disagree via religion, right? And in that there's a positioning of yes. uh, it's, it's Jews versus Muslims. And, you yeah. know, that analysis argues that it's an age old conflict and it's a religious conflict, right? That's an idealist framework. Another idealist framework can sometimes be the juxtaposition of like modernity versus the Oriental, right? Or modernity versus backwardness, right? With Israel seeing, mm-hmm. being seen as kind of like 
a modern sort of nation in the heart of a backwards or oriental Middle East. And then, you know, the last one that we see really often in terms of an idealist analysis is the juxtaposition of Western democracy versus authoritarianism, right? So Israel as the only democracy in the Middle East and authoritarianism usually being invoked to discuss Gaza, but sometimes we also see it being invoked around the West Bank, where, of course, there have been no elections for over a decade because of the occupying Zionist force. And so ultimately, the idealist analysis takes us to a place of Palestinians and Israelis are not able to get along, they're in conflict, and they need to be brought to a table to engage in dialogue and discussion and come to a, an agreement. But mm-hmm. a material analysis would lead us to understand the specific formation of Zionism in the 19th century as a colonial ideology, which aligned itself okay. with imperialism to achieve uh, its colonial goals, right? And in the early 20th century, Palestine was colonized by the British. So Palestine was under a British mandate. And through the uh, Zionist kind of appeals to the British, right, calling on the British to give them the land of of Palestine, right? And we saw that through the the Zionist movement, the British began to facilitate for Zionist settlers to, to come to Palestine. And the kind of the clear sort of pinpoint of that would be through the Balfour Declaration of 1917, which is where essentially Palestine was you know, signed away, right, by, by Balfour. Yes. And oftentimes the historical analysis says, okay, there was the Balfour Declaration in 1917. And then in 1948, we had the Palestinian Nakba, which uh, is the Arabic word for catastrophe, whereby mm-hmm. over 750,000 Palestinians were violently dispossessed uh, out of Palestine, not including all of the Palestinians that were internally displaced. And of course, what gets lost in that in that kind of analysis of Balfour and Nakba is that between the period of 1917 to the period of 1948, Palestinians were actually organizing and resisting. Okay. And they were resisting. They, they were putting together different organizing cells across, across Palestine, and they were revolting and resisting against both British colonization and against Zionist settler colonialism, which as early as nine, the 19, 1917 was beginning to mass dispossess Palestinian peasants and replace, push them into really precarious labor forces or even leave them completely unemployed and creating as early as the ni- 1920s a particular wealth within the mm-hmm. Zionist settler communities. And so I think the settler colonial framework, which is the, the materialist analysis ultimately, is yeah. the, the best way for us to understand Palestine. And through that kind of framework, we're able to kind of move throughout key points of, of Palestinian history, beginning at the Nakba, or even beginning pre-Nakba, and then all the way to today and understand the situation in Palestine more clearly. Thank you so much. And that was a beautiful kind of like overview. And I think, again, so many red light, not red light, so many flashlights are going off in my brain right now. First, that comes to mind. And I know these questions might seem very basic, but I think sometimes, I think many of us on the left who are probably involved in reading theory, we can sometimes overestimate how much how aware people are sometimes. And it's, and, I, and the kind of premise of this podcast has always been that we strip it down to its bare, even if we have to give definitions so people understand. So what you said two things to come to mind. You've said settler colonialism and you said Zionism. How should we understand these terms? Yeah, so 
Um, I guess I'll start with settler colonialism. And so settler mm-hmm. colonialism is ultimately one of a few different kinds of colonialism. And with settler yeah. colonialism, what you effectively have is the, it's a bit distinct from say like planter or it's like exploitative colonialism yeah. where the goal is just to have a couple of outposts, maybe corporations that are extracting resources and wealth and that are like heavily reliant on the local population for labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, settler colonialism is distinct because it effectively replaces the indigenous community with a new community. Uh, and so we mm-hmm. see, for example, Canada uh, and or what we understand as Canada and the United States and Australia as examples of settler colonies. Yes. And yeah, and in the case of settler colonialism, the primary goal is always possession, so removing the indigenous communities from the land. But then oftentimes the exploitation, the economic exploitation or proletarianization of those communities um, is part of that process as well. And so in, for example, in the case of Palestine, we see economic processes of ultimately, you know, and even political processes of apartheid. Um, being created in order to uh, deal with the fact that settler colonialism is incomplete. And we can kind of unpack that a little bit more later. Yeah. But in the case of, you know, an, or to, to define Zionism, so Zionism is a political ideology that was yes. really put together by Theodore Herzl in the 1800s. And effectively, what Herzl argues for is a Jewish homeland in Palestine, right? And interestingly, oftentimes we talk about Zionism as, and we we fixate a lot on Jewish Zionism, which, you know, I understand why we do that, but it's also important to bring into the conversation that there's also Christian Zionism, which Mm. in many ways actually predates Jewish Zionism in that Christians have been advocating for and it's it's actually extremely anti-semitic but they're they as part of a anti-semitism and b a particular reading of the book of revelations uh in the mm-hmm. bible the uh christian argument has been that christian zionism could be a way to force jewish communities out of europe and now we see it also huge christian zionism is huge in the united states with organizations like christians united for israel kufi and others uh which of which like key politicians, particularly from the Republican Party, are invested in or involved in. And Christian Zionism says this is a way for us to have Jewish people move away, like not be living in our community. So there's the key anti-Semitism there. But also it invokes the Book of Revelations to argue that once Jewish communities then move to Palestine or Israel, then there will be the second coming, which is an extremely violent process for all Jewish communities who don't convert. So it's it's extremely anti-Semitic, a very scary ideology. And actually, a lot of that ideology seeped into Herzl's work himself. But ultimately, what Theodore Herzl put together was a, and Herzl himself was very open about the fact that Zionism was a colonial project. He actually, I think, invoked the words, there is something colonial about Zionism, were the words that he used to advocate for and, and advocate to the British to grant the Zionist movement the right to settle in Palestine. Okay. So when we think of like particularly forms of like Zionism today, I'm, I'm sure I mean, you're definitely aware, it's always it now has become equated to or falsely equivalent with, for example, equated with, sorry, when you say anti-Zionism, you have now adopted the position of anti-Semitism or to be anti-Jewish. 
how has that kind of come to being or what tra- trends have you seen that cause that to emerge? And then we've also seen the pushback against BDS as well. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great question. And I think it's important for us to first situate or understand that there have been extremely long traditions of Jewish anti-Zionism, like visions for Jewish liberation that mm-hmm. like didn't necessarily identify as anti-Zionism because they predate the formation of Herzl's vision of Zionism, but organizing around this concept that we will dismantle anti-Semitism, right? So we saw a lot of this organizing in in Europe, which was basically Jewish communities and that were coming together to organize around anti-Semitism, how to fight anti-Semitism, wanting to create Mm -hmm. and having visions for a world where anti-Semitism does not exist, right? The material conditions of anti basis of anti-Semitism defeated. Zionism kind of becoming the fixation and sort of becoming equated to Judaism is also yes. an erasure of that extremely long history of Jewish communities organizing for their liberation mm. without using Zionism, right? And we see that like continuations of that tradition today through organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace or Independent yes. Jewish Voices, right? These are anti-Zionist Jewish organizations who are really mm-hmm. challenging the way in which Zionism and anti-Semitism are conflated. You know, mm-hmm. I'm very mindful of the fact that I think it was just yesterday or the day before when students... So it happened in London, yeah? Yes, yeah, yeah. And the way in which students at LSC effectively like blocked all of the entries and, and protested against this extremely racist uh, Nakba denying yeah. ambassador. I don't want to go off track, but I've, <laughs> again, I don't even know who she is, but I've seen so much of the fallout on, online. They're saying that even amongst like Zionists, they're considered to be quite extreme. Yeah, she was, I think, the first representative for, like, settlements. Like, I don't know the, the oh, role wow. of her title. Yeah, so she was she was central to the Israeli settlement project. She denies that the Nakba ever happened. You oh, know, wow. she is anti-interracial marriage. Like, all of these things. And so <sighs> we see, right, how this person who ultimately stands against, like, I mean, if we understand that all of our liberation is intertwined, right? This is clearly someone who does not represent collective liberation, right? Of and course. this idea that protesting her and protesting her presence on a campus is anti-Semitic is really, I mean, I think an insult to how we yep. understand and how severe anti-Semitism really is. And so this conflation, right, which is ultimately really happened both by Christian Zionists and by like the different elements of the Zionist lobby it's just a way for Israel to shield itself from any kind of critique, right? So any critique of the Jewish state, the quote-unquote Jewish state, right? Because Israel calls itself the Jewish state. It calls it, it suggests like it speaks on behalf of world, like all of the Jew, Jewish communities in the world. But yeah. when you really look at, especially new statistics and things like that, like I know here in Canada, a poll was done pretty recently by CJPME and IJV and a couple of other organizations. And what they found was that large amounts of Jewish Canadians don't identify with the Israeli state. And those numbers are changing every year. More and more Jewish Canadians, Jewish Americans, Jewish folks in the UK are starting to feel like they don't connect with whatever the project is that's happening over there. And you Mm -hmm. see kind of this, the, the Israeli state going into or using all kinds of tools to try to force that connection, right? We see that through Birthright, which is a program through which any Jewish person in the world 
can claim yep. birthright and go on a trip to Palestine while Palestinians are denied the right to return. Why do you do that? Now I'm going to have these the Israelites, the black people who think they're Jewish, gonna, they're going to claim their citizenship. <laughs> now I'm just playing. <laughs> <laughs> part of the pot no i'm just kidding but you know so, so you know israel is consistently in a process of trying to manufacture a relationship between yep. jewish communities globally and the settler colonial project and i think more and more we're seeing jewish communities say no not in my name that's not my project i'm not going on birthright i refuse mm-hmm. to do that and we're seeing the growth of this anti-zionist movement that is rejecting the conflation of anti-zionism and anti-semitism Thank you so much. So another thing people ask then, because obviously someone is involved in organizing, activism, what, okay, we have BDS, obviously, but we also have other forms of like protests that take place outside embassies. What, I know you don't speak on behalf of all activists, but what is the kind of, yeah, what is the objective that people who are anti-Israel as a state, as, as a project, calling for? Are they calling for, like, you know, you know, you get so sensationalized. Oh, they're calling for Israel to be wiped off or they're calling for, you know, a second Holocaust. And, you know, all these things that which they say that they know that will stir emotions in the minds and hearts of people. But what is, what is it? Is it that, is it a two-state solution? Is it a one-state solution? Is it for Israel to no longer exist? Like, what do you, what would you say is, or what are you calling for? Yeah, I think that what I, the way I understand this is not in state solutions, right? I think there's a fundamental flaw in sort of the fixation on state building and oftentimes Mm -hmm. the way in which state building actually has been used by Israel, by the United States, right, through the Oslo Accords and all of these different kind of things to understand this project of, oh, well, we can just help the Palestinians build some kind of shell of a state, right, through particular state institutions and so on. And so I think ultimately the best way to understand this movement is this is a movement for national liberation. This is a a national liberation Mm. struggle, right? And that means that anybody who lives on the land, right, who is not there to subjugate Palestinians, right, who also believes in the freedom and liberation of Palestinians, could technically join this national liberation struggle. And we see some of this starting to happen, I think, with certain Israeli citizens who are refusing to serve, right? I think they're called refuseniks. So there's a small, I guess, really, really small at this point, movement, people who live there, Israelis who are, you know, and I think another example could be like Jeff Halper, who's written a book called something like Decolonizing Palestine or something along those Mm -hmm. lines. There are there is this this small movement of of Israelis who are against colonization. But I think it's also important to note that there's a larger number unfortunately of Israelis who at this point their only issue is with the settlements, right? Uh, these are kind mm-hmm. of what we call liberal Zionists, right? They believe in the project of Israel. They believe in the 67 borders, for example. And they're just really upset by the settlements. They're like, you know, we want the settlements to stop. The issue is the occupation, but not colonization. And mm-hmm. so this is also kind of like an obfuscation of the struggle because they end up taking up quite a bit of space. They end up directing conversations to be that the issue is the settlements. And through that, they oftentimes separate the settlers from the state, right? And I think when we challenge that separation and we understand that actually in a settler colony, the settlers are tasked with settling the state's frontier, right? So in Israel, uh, the settlers are protected by the Israeli occupation forces. 
They are given monetary compensation to settle outside of the bounds of the state, and they're integral to the state itself, right? And inside the 48, Palestine occupied in 48, there's also a role that settlers play. For example, within Israel proper, there is an organization called Garim Torani, which opens yeshivas in mixed cities. And mixed cities are like cities like Ajami, which is in Yaffa, or Ramli, or Lid. These are all cities within 48. Mixed mm-hmm. cities are basically... These are cities that were once heavily populated with Palestinians, and Mm -hmm. the Israeli state launched campaigns to mix those cities by encouraging Israelis to move into the state, right? To essentially change the character of those cities. There's an internal process within Israel. People love to pretend like, oh, Israel's post-colonial. The issue is not within the framework of Israel. The issue is the settlements. But Israel itself is internally a colonial project with Palestinians who live in it also impacted by processes of colonization. And this organization, Garin Torani, essentially their goal is to buy significant amounts of property in Palestinian neighborhoods like Ajami, which they're able to buy through state processes of underdevelopment and gentrification and state apartheid laws. And they want to effectively make those cities more quote-unquote Jewish, right? And so they Mm -hmm. see internally these cities as an internal frontier. So this idea that we can just behave like, okay, this is maybe, there's a struggle here around one state versus two state, and liberal Zionists would argue that, oh, well, if Israel just stops its settlement building and stops its occupation, everything will be okay, we can have two states, is also false, right? I think we need to re-solidify ourselves that this is a struggle for Palestinian national liberation. We are fighting for the liberation of Palestine from the river to the sea. Anyone who wants Mm -hmm. to fight for the struggle with us is welcome to join us. Anyone who is not there in order to subjugate us is welcome to be part of our struggle. This is a struggle for national liberation. Thank you so much. And I think it's, I think when you situate it like that, it removes so much of the obfuscations we see online today. You know, and I'm going to just say straight up, and I think I can, you know, things like, oh, but Israel is, sorry, about Palestine and Arabs are anti-black, which is, sorry, I just, I get so pissed off when I hear that shit, <laughs> if I'm honest with me, because, I, no, I mean, I'm thinking, okay, but this is, as if you can, if you're Pan-African, there's people who claim that, and again, that term has unfortunately been hijacked by so many cultural nationalists. But if you are pan-Africanist in the sense how Kwame Nkrumah and Sekoture defined it, the complete unification and liberation of Africa under scientific socialism, then you have the tools at your disposal to see what is happening here. Mm-hmm. It's not, yeah, of course there's going to be issues of race. Cuba has issues of race. Which country doesn't have issues of race? But again, it's a very clear demarcation between colonizer and the colonized people. Is that's it. And that's the side you have to choose right now. Everything else is secondary or tertiary or, or even beyond that, actually, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. And then what I, what I don't like about it as well, I know, I know I'm going to run on a tangent, but what I don't like about it as well, it also removes the internationalism of black radicals, historically. I mean, you know, recently, I think we were commemorating the or marking the death of death anniversary of Kwame Ture. Mm-hmm. And someone like Kwame Ture said that, you know, there can be no black liberation similarly without the liberation of Palestine. The Black Panthers had the same ob- objective. How many of our Pan-African leaders saw like, okay, the same forces of imperialism that cause the subjugation of people on the continent are the same forces at play and the same pa- alliances being made that are oppressing the Palestinian people. 
So again, I just find, yeah, sorry, that, that was a very, I don't know how I even got there, but I just thought of, you know, I see some things online, particularly I'm going to name and shame the Afro-pessimists who speak about, you know, and they have a particular problem with Palestinians and Palestine because of their nonsensical anecdotal experiences when they went to Palestine or whatever. And somehow that has now been used to extrapolate and project that onto the whole cause. So they say, so for example, they say, okay, yeah, even if Palestine was to be liberated, we're going to have to deal with the anti-black problem. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, eh? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or your readings have, have led you anywhere around those topics. Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think that certainly there are, of course, issues within Palestinian society, right? This is an imperfect society. This is a society that is riddled with the realities of colonization, right? They are consistently put into a place where they are not able to deal with really a lot of the issues that we talk about here, mm-hmm. primarily because they're consistently facing colonialism. But yeah, but I think I think certainly once Palestine is liberated, we, we absolutely will have a lot of work to do, right? But I think what you mentioned about like this long history of co-resistance and internationalism between black, like black radicals and Palestinians is so important. And I love that you brought up Kwame Ture because one of I think the greatest videos to ever be done on Zionism. Was, mm-hmm. was by Kwame Ture, right? He's got the hour <laughs> and something long lecture. You can find it on YouTube. You can just type Kwame Ture and Zionism and it comes up and it's just incredible, right? And he talks about, you know, he challenges the idea of Zionism as a self-determination movement. He ties Zionism to imperialism. Huey Newton has pieces on Palestine on why the Panthers took a position of supporting Palestine. Mm-hmm. And Huey Newton even visited uh, Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so there were connections that these folks were actually making because what they were doing was they weren't just saying, we care about Palestine because Palestinians deserve to be cared about. What they were saying was Israel's role in the world is a role of an agent of empire. This is a settler colony mm-hmm. that works hand in hand with the American empire that is oppressing black people in the United yeah. States, right? And we see that today. We see how the skunk water that's used in Palestine is then used on yep. protesters in the United States. We see how yep. the weapons that Israel tests on Palestinians and the surveillance that Israel uses to test on Palestinians is then exported to all parts of the world, to Colombia, right? Israel plays a really reactionary role in the repression of people in Colombia. Israel has a strong relationship with uh, India's fascist Modi government and, you know, so on and so forth. So Israel has a central role in world imperialism. And what people like Kwame Ture and Huey Newton and Angela Davis to this day consistently talks about these things, talking about when they when they talk about the liberation of Palestinians, when they talk about Israel's role, they're making connections between our all of our oppression because our oppressors are also making these connections. And we understand then to use Hassan Kanafani's words, right? He says, oh, and I'm going to, I'm going to misquote him. And I hate misquoting Kanafani. But he <laughs> says, you know, imperialism has laid its body over the world. And wherever you hit it, or wherever you strike it, you serve the world revolution, right? And we know mm. that this was kind of the, the internationalism of people like Kanafani and people like Huey Newton and Kwame Ture, right? And yep. yeah, I think that this long, like this long history, I'll share you know, one of my favorite stories of, of solidarity between 
Palestinian struggle and the black struggle. Um, actually, there's a few, right? I mean, we know, for example, that when Angela Davis was in prison, prisoners from Palestine sent her a letter. They smuggled a letter out of their prison cell and it made its way into her prison cell. And it was this like letter yeah. of solidarity. But then we also know that like Samih al-Qasim, who wrote this this beautiful poem called Enemy of the Sun, and he wrote it while he was a prisoner. He's a Palestinian political prisoner. And Mm -hmm. this poem would make its way, right? George George Jackson actually wrote this poem in his his notebook uh, while he was in prison. And it was when the notebook was was seized and and reproduced, right? Like a you know, put put up for, for people to see that this, these were George Jackson's writing. They saw this poem and they assumed that George Jackson had written it, right? And I'm forgetting who it was, but someone who was previously involved with the Panthers called this like mistake of radical kinship, right? Because like the sentiments of Samih al-Qasim inside prison were so, spoke so much to George Jackson that we almost couldn't tell who wrote the poem, right? So mm, it's just like, you know, there's wow. this long history of internationalism uh, and co-resistance. And I think that through understanding Israel's role in relation to empire, which Kwame Ture is really the, has done this brilliant job at doing, yeah. we're able to understand this very clearly. No, absolutely. And I think something that the progression of, let's say, into and the subsumption of neoliberalism of our politics and having the radicalism, particularly the internationalism, removed from our figures, we forget the likes of William Patterson, 51, we charge genocide. Mm-hmm. Oh, then when Malcolm, you know, one of Malcolm's last attempts before he was assassinated was to bring a petition to the UN. And, and in doing so, it was a recognition of the status of black people, African-Americans, as a subcolony. Within, mm-hmm. or, or as, a, as colonized people within yes. America. And it was making those links that allowed that, that further on, you know, inspired internationalism that we see in the likes of, let's say, uh, in the Panthers, for example, mm-hmm. who, may, you know, many, many use Malcolm as their go to. And I feel like, so again, I feel like if, and, and what's coming to mind right now, and I know you're going to speak about it, is where does Fanon fit in all of this? <laughs> <laughs> I love that you knew that. I, I mean, I can't, I can't really have ever bring up, have a conversation about this or anything really without bringing up Fanon. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think Fanon's work, like particularly, you know, when Fanon says that his project is a project of stretching Marx, right? He he seeks yeah. to stretch Marx because in in the colony he says the substructure is also the superstructure and you know yes. one of the reasons that i find myself so incredibly steeped in fanon's analysis of the colony is i think reading through in particular Hassan Kanafani's work on the 1936 to 1939 revolts in Palestine which is by the way like in my opinion one of the most critical reads for anyone trying to learn more about Palestine and so what Kanafani maps out is actually the ways in which the Palestine Communist Party, pre-Nakba Palestine, so this was the Palestine Communist Party of like the 1910s and 1920s, which was ultimately a Zionist party, right? It did not, it was connected to the USSR, but it did not mm-hmm. necessitate an anti-Zionist position until it was far mm-hmm. too late, right? And one of the things Kenefani maps out is he highlights this incident on May 1st, 1920, where there's a clash between the Zionists and the communists. And the executive committee of the party essentially puts out a statement, which basically says, look, 
we are here, Jewish workers are here to live with you. Like this is a statement to the Palestinian workers. They're saying mm-hmm. the Jewish workers are here to live with you. We will fight. We, we, we want to fight side by side with you against the capitalist enemy, be the enemy Jewish, Arab, or British, right? And they mm-hmm. call on Palestinians to fight against the rich who are selling their land, their country, to, uh, and their country to mm-hmm. foreigners. And they say, you know, down with British and French bayonets, down with the Arab and foreign capitalists, right? And mm-hmm. Kenafani pinpoints in his analysis that the most essential thing to take from this statement is that the word Zionism was missing entirely from it. And so this effectively, some type of Zionist slash Zionist sympathetic, like there were Zionists in its ranks, Communist Party was basically towing this line of Jewish and Palestinian workers unite against this this capitalist enemy, right? And for Palestinians, they were actually effectively being, during this time frame, heavily dispossessed, removed from their lands, and having Zionists replace them on their lands. So how could you engage them in an anti-colonial struggle and ignore the word Zionism, right? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because for a lot of people, you know, they could read this actually as this is, oh, this is a case of class reductionism. But actually, I think through Fanon's work, we can see that what it represents is a fundamental misunderstanding of class, right? And so Mm -hmm. in the colony, Fanon teaches us that class formation is related to colonial status, right? And we see how this continues today. Despite certain Palestinians being allowed to ascend into roles of the petty bourgeoisie, and mm-hmm. you know this actually makes me think oh, of this. It's your. I'm going to cite your podcast, <laughs> but this <laughs> makes me think of the episode that where where you and Deej had Dr. Joy James on. Yeah, and there was this brilliant quote that she said that I literally just replayed it over and over, and I wrote it down. Where Dr. <laughs> Joy James says, "If the state has longevity, it knows to have proxy soldiers." Right. And that mm. quote stuck with me so much because I think even though the Israeli settler colonial state has sort of shifted to understand that it needs to have allow for certain segments of the Palestinian bourgeoisie to uh, or petty bourgeoisie to ascend. Right. And we see that both in the West Bank with the simultaneous comprador and the petty bourgeoisie and inside the yep. lands of 1948 with also the same thing. Right. Ultimately, mm-hmm. the uh, the underpinning of the state is still dependent on colonial status, right? And that's something that we can only clearly understand through the framework that Fanon offers us. Exactly, and that ties in brilliantly to Kwame Nkrumah. Honestly, if you're going to think about his understanding or how he details the role of the the role comprador class or the role of the petty bourgeoisie and the creation of these petty bourgeoisie is what? Is to ensure that finance capital and imperialism is continued. Mm (laughs) <laughs> so the same thing one happens internally one happens externally but their role is the same mm-hmm. so I think it's important yeah it's important to situate it around that yeah, yeah. this has been oh nah, like, that's been dope sorry this has been really let me let me also add add a little bit more of like the Please. class analysis to that right and so let's take it back again to, to 1901 Israel's, mm-hmm. Israel Zangwill, who was a British Zionist and one of the founders of the Jewish Territorial Organization and a friend of Theodore Herzl's, went to the Article Club uh, in, in the UK yeah. and he made an appeal to British capitalists, which was, you know, you can find it on record. It's called The Commercial Future of Palestine. And in this okay. appeal, he says, look, the Palestinian state has slept for centuries and is greatly hindered by, it doesn't have roads, railways, harbors water power, 
He says that the land has just a small population of Arabs and Fallahin farmers, and yeah. and he says wandering, lawless, blackmailing Bedouin tribes. He mocks the Palestinian economy, right? He says that they've got all this fertile land and unused minerals, and the Palestinians have failed to exploit and develop it. And he kind of has this statement where he says, "The sleep must end. The great powers are awake." Not only Russia and Germany, but the great powers of steam and electricity, right? And mm-hmm. he argues that the solution to wake Palestine from its slumber is the creation of a Jewish nation state. And he he says Zionism will regenerate the land, create industries and railways, and in the long run, it will pay for themselves. And he says, you know, and this is one of the where that famous quote comes from. He says, "Restore the country without a people to the people without a country." Right. So mm-hmm. it's effectively he invokes and and he he says that they will make the wilderness bloom blossom as the rose. Right. Kind of okay. this undertowing of they will make the desert bloom. And effectively what he's saying, right, when he invokes all of this, is he's saying not that the space is empty. He understands that there are people there, right? And we see this also with settler colonial projects on Turtle Island and so on, right? This imagination of the land is empty as a place to be developed by the capitalists and colonists. It's not that they, they think that the land is actually empty, but they see the land as because the indigenous populations are not properly extracting like to them, they, they're not productive enough. There isn't enough extraction coming from the land. Wow. Therefore, it is not rightfully theirs. And this kind of ties back to like liberal capitalist frameworks like from John Locke, right? Who also makes this, mm-hmm. these kinds of claims, right? And so effectively what they were appealing to was a, a colonial, they were appealing to an imperialist, the British, to create this mass amount of profits, right? And we see that kind of class relation. We see the very realities of that through dispossession, proletarianization, and actually something that's largely unknown, which are labor camps. And so, you know, I've already kind of mentioned that through Zionist colonization of of Palestine, Palestinians would be dispossessed from the land and and pushed into into the workforce, right? And so we see this kind of Fanon's assessment of the of class in the in the colony, where yes. you know Fanon says you are rich because you are white, you are white because you are poor, right? Mm-hmm. And so we see that in in Palestine, where Palestinians are immediately dispossessed from the land and, and subjugated, and wow. Zionists are able to own the land that Palestinians lived on, and so we see that that racialized class formation, mm-hmm. and we also see that. While the primary goal was the complete dispossession, it came with economic subjugation because the because the project of settler colonialism is incomplete, right? So apartheid mm-hmm. exists because settler colonialism is not complete. Mm. Yeah, and so wow, a really like a something that's the least wow. a less less kind of known historical crime is that between 1948 and 1955. Thousands of Palestinians were actually placed into at least 22 Zionist-run labor camps. And this is something that's been researched and revealed through the work of Palestinian historian Salman Abu Sitta. And, you know, Mm -hmm. he's able to reveal how Israel captured and imprisoned particularly able-bodied Palestinian men, stole them from their families to work in camps, and that these camps were, uh, these, these forced laborers supported Israel's wartime economy. So this was between 48 and 55. And so we see how economic subjugation went hand in hand with dispossession because Israel's settler colonial project was incomplete. And 
this kind of relation, this class relation, continues to exist today where Palestinians continue to be the basis of the Israeli, Palestinian labor and resources continue wow. to be the basis of Israeli economy, right? So, of course, we see that through land and resource theft, right? The building of settlements, the uh, stealing of water, stealing of resources, and things that we've already mentioned, for example, testing weapons and surveillance and, on Palestinians yep. and marketing them to the world, but also through labor theft. I mean, thousands, tens of thousands of Palestinians cross through checkpoints every single day to Israel to work for Israeli companies in almost entirely wow. what would be deemed as quote-unquote unskilled labor. And I put those quotes because we know that that just that all labor is yeah, skilled, right? Course. And that course, yeah. unskilled labor is just code for underpaid and overexploited. And so these Palestinians have to use daily work permits and spend hours at checkpoints, in particular Kalandia checkpoint, in order to enter Israel to work for extremely low wages. And so effectively, Palestinians in the West Bank provide Israel with, to use Marx's word, Marx's words, a reserve army of labor. And that's by design, right? And so even though the Israeli settler colonial project likes to pretend like, oh, Israel is this post-colonial society, right? I mean, liberal Zionists like to pretend that at least, yeah. right? The basis of the Israeli economy continues to this day to be what Fanon outlined, which is colonial relations. And once again, if you're not using a material analysis... This late in the day, we we have no use for you. Eddie. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but no, but thank you so much. I mean, we could go, actually go and speak about so much, but I'm just wary of the time. Anything you want to add to that, or you know, maybe the one thing that I will add, um, just to like close us off on on something yeah. a little bit more positive, right? Yes. Is is so through this materialist analysis, we understand Israel is Israel existence, right, and their their settler colonial model is also by nature imperialist, right? And I mean, Nick, Est yeah. Nick Estes in particular has lots of work, I think, important work that ties colonization and imperialism and understands them not as like distinct processes, but in relationship to one another. Mm -hmm. And so Israel's role globally and in the Middle East is, is essentially expansionist, right? Israel not okay. only expands into the West Bank and, and you know, uh, consistently encroaches on the West Bank through settlements, but Israel currently occupies the Golan Heights in Syria. And mm. Israel used to occupy South Lebanon, right? Actually, it had a brutal occupation of South Lebanon, uh, which my family, my family, my Lebanese side is from the South, was yeah. extremely impacted by. We couldn't go to Lebanon. My, my, my mother and grandmother couldn't go to my great-grandmother's funeral because they would have had to get permits to cross into South Lebanon to, you know, because there were checkpoints, right? I mean, so there was an Israeli occupation of the South, mm -hmm. and Israel also was involved in the Lebanese Civil War, right? They worked with the Lebanese phalangists, the Lebanese fascists, to kill so many Palestinians, including the, we know of the massacres of Sabra and Shatila. We know Israel was involved in those massacres. Modern day, Israel is consistently warmongering towards Iran, right? You can see that Israel is consistently trying yep. to gear the United States to be hostile and invade Iran. We we see like things like, you know, Joe Biden previously said, look, if there wasn't an Israel, we would have needed to create one, right? And imperialists are consider consistently talking about Israel as their biggest ally in the region. And that's not because of some kind of vague identifier of shared values. It's a material relationship. 
And then I've already kind of alluded to Israel's role globally, right? I mentioned Colombia and India, right? And so I think what's really important then is that how do we resist this? We resist this through a framework of internationalism, right? There has been, as we already mentioned, decades-long internationalism between uh, Palestinian and black revolutionaries. There was internationalism yeah. between Palestinians and South Africa, internationalism between Palestinians and the Irish struggle, Cuba-Palestine solidarity. And so I think the key thing that we can learn from this materialist analysis is that we cannot treat the case of settler colonization in Israel as sort of this regional or uniquely just Palestine problem, but rather we mm-hmm. have to understand it in relationship to all anti-colonial and anti-imperialist struggles globally. And that's how you situate a struggle. <laughs> thank you. Now, thank you so much for that, Yara, once again. That's dope. Again, people, we're going to have Yara on again. Believe me. <laughs> and we're going to do much more because I think, again, I think you are a gem. And thank you so much for coming on The Malcolm Effect. You're listening to The Malcolm Effect with Momodou. Until next time, please like, comment, subscribe, either on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And until next time, peace out.